Right. Absolutely. You know, if you go to Disney World, for instance, down there in the Haunted Mansion, you see the hologram, right? Or you know how to make a hologram. Well, our scientists have learned how to make people. They call them synthetics. Are you familiar with those? Um, well, actually, we just interviewed John Lear, and he was talking about being in an audience in which they were given a lecture by a guy that they thought was real and found out later was he was a hologram. It's a synthetic. The synthetics, when you touch their skin, it feels like uh, plastic. Almost. That's the latest technique. The old, the old techniques. Uh, if you guys can rent a video, uh, the boys from Brazil, rent it because in it, it gives you the exact way how our government's been making people. Really. Yeah, well, and the on. Soviets have a different method. Called I mean, making people meaning temporary people. No, walking, talking ones. Our administration believes that there are loopholes that could allow the cloning of human beings if such if the technology were developed. Therefore, today I am issuing a directive that bans the use of any federal funds for any cloning of human beings. Effective immediately, no federal agency may support, fund, or undertake such activity. Of course, a great deal of research and activity in this area is supported by private funds. That is why I am urging the entire scientific and medical community, every foundation, every university, every industry that supports work in this area, to heed the federal government's example. I'm asking for a voluntary moratorium on the cloning of human beings until our Bioethics Advisory Commission and our entire nation have had a real chance to understand and debate the profound ethical implications of the latest advances. As we gain a fuller understanding of this technology, we must proceed not with caution, not just with caution, but also with a conscience. By insisting that not a single taxpayer dollar supports human cloning, and by urging a moratorium on all private research in this area, we can ensure that as we move forward on this issue, we weigh the concerns of faith and family and philosophy and values, not merely of science alone. nature that's being displayed here Well, thank you, Dr. Malcolm, but I think things are a little bit different than you and I have feared. Yeah, I know, they're a lot worse. Now, wait a second now, we haven't even seen the final interview. Don't let them talk. There's no reason. I want to hear you talk. I really do. Don't you see the danger, John, inherent? You're doing here genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start totally generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses. Uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it? Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Should have, would have, could have. Where is your god now? Now that wild and elegant armies of clones stalk the land, a dinosaur bites off your butt. A facsimile of your own mommy emerges from a pit of quicksand and bites off your butt again. Yes, 
It grew back after the dinosaur bit it off, but that doesn't matter. In this irrational world that you, the scientists, have created, there is no logic. No empathy. No lasting buts. Inside of a modest gallery space in East Hampton, New York, a man clones himself obsessively. One day, he, too, will lose his butt. It is only a matter of time. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you science humping screedlers. This is Stefan Lee, the podcast studio manager. We're coming at you big time with a bonus episode this week from a site visit to Halsey McKay Gallery where artist David Kennedy Cutler has been living and working this winter. You can watch him like a little fucking creep by checking out the live stream feed currently on the front page of the gallery's website. Are you ready to enter the absolute depths of his psyche? Good. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 48 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Once again, listeners, little screedlers, you're getting a bonus episode this week. On Sunday, I released a super fun conversation with artist Andrew McGinty, and then later that morning, I hopped the Long Island Railroad and headed out for a night in East Hampton. There, my friend, the artist David Kennedy Cutler, has been living inside of a gallery called Halsey McKay for the last several weeks. He's building a very strange installation that includes a bunch of clones of himself that he's producing through a mixture of 3D scanning and sculpture. He spends his nights in the gallery, surrounded by the clones, and then spends his days building and changing the environment that they all share together. You can catch a live stream of David's work 24 hours a day via the Halsey McKay website. That's H-A-L-S-E-Y-M-C-K-A-Y.com. He returns to the city once a week to fulfill his responsibilities as an adjunct faculty member at NYU, but outside of that, you can pretty much see him in there all the time. I wrote a review of uh, David's solo show one-to-one at Derek Eller Gallery last summer uh, on the Lower East Side, and that show featured many of the same elements as the current project, from the clones to these coffin-like vitrine sculptures to digital print transfers of his clothing, food, and other everyday materials. Um, there's going to be a link to both my review and that live stream in this week's episode description, so if you can't remember the URL I just said earlier, check the description. I stayed the night at the gallery with David, and he treated me to a very fun, uh, but I guess a little bit creepy, experience all around. Now, if you've been meaning for some time to sign up to support Human the Abject on Drip, now would be a very good time <clears throat> to go ahead and do that. You see, yesterday, while preparing to head out and teach my class of teens at the MoMA, uh, a faulty thermos of coffee <clears throat> leaked all over the inside of my backpack and basically destroyed my laptop. I am heading in a little bit to get what I can only assume is going to inevitably be terrible news from the Apple Store, but uh, my computer began sizzling and smoking uh, later yesterday, and I'm pretty sure that it is just going to be completely fucked or, you know, cost a $900 to fix, which at that point, uh, you know, I've had that laptop since 2012, kind of seems like maybe it's time to uh, go ahead and 
get a new one uh, instead of spending $900 that I don't have to uh, fix something that's probably going to break anyways. Uh, and, of course, liquid damage is not covered under AppleCare, which I will tell you I was responsible enough to purchase, but it doesn't really matter in this situation. Um, so, anyways, uh, all of my drip support for the next god knows how long, I guess 18 months it takes to pay off a laptop, uh, is pretty much going to be going directly to that. So, Consider this a call to arms. If you've been sitting around wanting to back humor in the abject because you like all the episodes that are coming out or you like the writing that I'm doing, go ahead. It's just five bucks a month. Uh, you can't even get a beer most places for that amount. And for that amount, rather, a month for that amount. For that amount, you can't even get a beer at most places. So uh, head on over to d.rip slash humor in the abject and sign up today. It'll mean the world to me, and it'll help uh, keep bringing these podcasts to your lovely little screedly ears. Uh, that's enough with the sob story. Uh, in other news, if you're going to the Nada Art Fair, try to swing by on Saturday, March 10th, because at 3 p.m. that day, I'm doing a live Human the Abject podcast with Leo Fitzpatrick, who you probably know from the art world from his work at Marlboro Chelsea uh, and a gallery he used to run called Home Alone 2. Uh, or from TV and film, uh, like the movie Kids, uh, or the TV show The Wire, the movie Doomsdays, or the last Pee Wee movie that was on Netflix. It's going to be a great time. Love, Leo. Really looking forward to talking to him. Uh, you've heard enough from me solo now. Here's my conversation with David Kennedy Cutler. LOL. David accidentally admitted to Sean that he liked the band, Tool, after they recorded. Uh, David Kennedy Cutler, welcome to Humor in the Abject. How how's your week going? It's busy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's been going on this week? Uh, this week I'm setting about the task of um, making some tools, mm-hmm. um, some representations of tools here in my exhibition off season. Um, and. Um, yeah, those things are going to manifest in some artworks that I'm going to be calling containers destroyed by their own content. It's sort of like the box with the sound of its own making? Something little, something along those lines. A little yeah. nod to that piece, the artist whose name I don't remember, but saw it one time in Seattle. Um, Robert Morris? Probably. Or Bruce Nauman? I don't know. One. I can never remember who made it. I just know that it's an important piece and it's always, it's heavily referenced and I always forget who it is. I hope to someday be so important that people forget my name as well. <laughs> but remember the piece. Yeah. Well, uh, that's the more important part. Yeah. Um, so I, I came out here to East Hampton and we're inside this, uh, I guess you could call it a developing installation. It's, it's in progress. Uh, called, as you mentioned, Off-Season at Halsey McKay Gallery. And um, when did you begin to occupy this space that we're in, and how long are you planning to be here? Um, the exhibition opened without an opening on January 24th. Okay. Um, so I arrived probably the day previous and began prepping. Uh, the exhibition started the moment that I uh, switched on the web camera that's behind us um currently and it's uh, recording us as we're speaking um and the show was always designed to be 10 week exhibition uh essentially runs from um in halls and cases uh kind of dead space where they usually do like a two month two or three month exhibition and it closes on march 24th which is like the fourth day of spring okay 
And so the is the dead space because this is not a busy time of year at the gallery space? And so typically they would just leave something up as opposed to having it be an active space? Uh, yeah, pretty much. It's also an opportunity for the gallery to do something more unorthodox because the commercial pressures of the on season mm-hmm. are not um, are not happening. So um, Ryan Wallace, who runs the gallery, um, um, ev- you know, every year he tries to kind of give permission to something a little more out there than what he would normally do. And what is uh what is off season all about? The installation that we're in, like, what are the what are you working with here, and what? I'm familiar with, you know, some of the iconography and the processes that you're using in here, but what, uh, what drove you to come out here for 10 weeks and kind of live, uh, you know, we're on the grid, but New York city wise off the grid. Um, the, so I've been doing a series of, um, perform borderline performance based, um, exhibitions where, um, I've been, I guess, gradually, what I imagine I'm like becoming a metaphor, um, but also that I become kind of a, a, a living sculpture or a sculpture that exists in a temporal space. Um, so that involves uh, wearing this um, digital skin suit that I produce that's an image of myself instead of myself. Um, so for my past two solo exhibitions, um, I've been using this alter ego or avatar and um, fresh off of uh, a show in in New York City, um, having finished installing the show as this character live before the audience at the opening. Um, Ryan Wallace, who I've done projects with in the past at at Halsey McKay, asked me to, if I wanted to have January. And I'm pretty sure the way that Ryan framed it was, hey man, do you want January? there's no budget, there's no gallery hours, there's no, you know, open hours, there's, you know, it's, it's basically, there's nothing really that within the functions of the gallery that's normal at all, but you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And, um, I kind of thought about that, like, oh, okay. So like, I'm an off season artist now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> like people don't even know where to put me sure yeah yeah um, well, you also you kind of assigned yourself a residency which is a cool thing actually um i think yeah i did and there's a lot of um kind of navel gazing art um aspects to the whole process where i think that this show has a um there's analogies that can be made to the artist residency the artist colony um the artist studio and I guess the list kind of goes on and on, but I'm also interested in like a a larger conflation about, um, kind of thinking about like the, the, the way that something like the off season applies to, um, aspects of culture and aspects of people and and labor and on and on. I mean, we can talk about that. I don't want to like slam that all into you mm-hmm. right now but um no those are things that i mean those are things that come through in the piece and i'm pretty or the i guess pieces i don't I don't know exactly how you would define this i guess it is a piece a single piece but um all of those things sort of come through ideas about labor and also access um seasonal things that i think we all kind of just like know but don't necessarily name like off season is something that i think prior to this i i think I understood as a concept, but it never really, you know, that wasn't in my vocabulary. I don't think that I have a, I'm not a participant in the on or off season kind of economics. So that was a pretty interesting part for me. And as you're talking about this, um, 
this idea of the of navel gazing or things about artist studios or artist residencies and stuff like that. When I first heard about you coming out here for 10 weeks, I, you know, thought about, uh, Tracy Emin, uh, Joseph Boys, Chris Burden, all this kind of stuff like that. And I'm wondering if this is supposed to be in your mind, a continuation of that lineage, or if it simply just kind of acknowledges like, yeah, that happened before, but I'm doing something a little bit different. Um, I think that's a tricky question because it, it's Good. it's a <laughs> great question. <Sean>. Yes. <laughs> um, it's it's funny because you know people have these ideas of themselves, and um, when I was a student, it was that I'm a painter, and mm. then when I ran up against a wall, I became a, what I imagined to be a sculptor, and that was sort of about solving a problem. And the development of this avatar and what it does um, to me is sort of dealing with like the base elements of being a sculptor, but like, whoops, now I'm a performance artist by mm-hmm. based on that. And I've been telling people this a lot that there are, there are performance artists who have really engaged with the lineage of performance art. And I guess I'm a, I'm a bit of a tourist here and, um, I'm I'm kind of um I guess I'm noticing in the areas that it, it that it intersects with people in the past and there are certainly artists that um that I've had these epiphanies about while working on these projects and one of them is Joseph Boys um but in the I think you can maybe tell that like I don't I'm not necessarily being very sacred about anything here no it, mm. it doesn't have a it, it's it's not as a, yeah, it's ceremonial, but in a way that seems a little bit more, um, uh, maybe less faux spiritual and a little more process based. Um, yeah. Um, and I guess going back to jo- just boys, I had an epiphany while working on the show. So I started telling my dad about what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, in like an escalating series of my dad thinking that I'm kind of nuts. Yeah. Where's and your dad? Uh, where is he? He lives in Albany, New York. Albany. Okay. He used to live in Vermont where I was, I grew up, but, um, he, I told him what I was going to do. And he said, Oh, have you seen the gold rush by Charlie Chaplin? And, um, in advance of the, the, I didn't really like do a lot of research. I did a lot of fantasizing about this, but, um, that movie became kind of weirdly integral to thinking about what I was doing here. And actually, the exhibition poster is a uh, is my face superimposed over Charlie Chaplin's a film still from that. Um, I had this weird epiphany when watching it that Joseph Boys must have watched that movie, mm-hmm. and that I wonder if anyone's even bothered to investigate this. But the creation of a character via like uh, I'm an, an appearance or an outfit, I was you know, racking my brain trying to think of people that have done that. And, um, like there's weirdly like a lot of similarities between Charlie Chaplin and Joseph Boys. That's funny. I don't know the gold rush. I haven't, I'm not familiar with it. What is, what is the uh, like elevator pitch? What's the premise? Um, the, it's set, uh, during the gold rush. Uh, although it seems like it's kind of more like turn of the century and not like 1849. And Charlie Chaplin is sort of an impoverished, tramp as always uh he goes to the sierra madre to go strike up his fortune and a lot of comedic hijinks ensue but 
<clears throat> it mostly revolves around him getting lost in a snowstorm and finding a cabin out near um, the edge of a cliff where um, he ends up kind of cohabitating with um, two kind of really grizzled um, prospector types. Okay. One, one of them who's really struck it rich and the other one who's a, like a convicted murderer who's on the lam. And um, they proceed to starve to death in this, or almost starve to death in this snowstorm. And they end up essentially, Charlie Chaplin especially, ends up like hallucinating, mm-hmm. you know, eating his own shoelaces and shoes. And um, uh, there's these scenes with uh, where there's a dog in the, like a sled dog that's in the um, huh. sh- shack with them. Okay. Yeah. And Charlie Chaplin ends, ends up fighting with Coyote. him. <laughs> yeah. He ends up fighting with the dog for meat. But, but Charlie Chaplin, the whole movie wears a, um, like a, like a felty looking blanket really? with a giant safety pin and, uh, a cane. What? Okay. And this is the exact iconography yeah, yeah, yeah. of, um, America loves yeah, yeah. me. That's and, funny. And I love it or whatever. It's I want to check that movie out. That's a, yeah. I wonder sometimes when you see, when you see a performance piece or even vice versa, if you see something in pop culture and wonder, you know, was the person aware of this thing? But it's, this sounds pretty, sounds like all the boxes are getting checked here. <laughs> the uh, voice piece seems pretty similar to it. And I, and, I, and I've been having conversations cause there's a boys documentary that was just out in the, in the movie theater and you know, and the boys are back in town, the, I believe it's called. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's good. It's got a great Huey Lewis soundtrack. Um, um, it's Thin Lizzy. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. <laughs> Please strike this. <laughs> oh, man. But um, wait, so, okay. Um, but yeah, you've got this. I mean, it's sort of funny, though, because you kind of have this... Um, the aesthetic that's going on here and also the way that it's presented in the press materials and things like that is that you're kind of in this... Uh, you know, this remote cabin kind of situation or the language run and stuff. But, you know, I'm sitting in this space with you right now. I'm wearing this gigantic blanket that you put on me. Uh, I'm wearing a pair of your simulated gloves and things like that. Um, and it does feel a little bit remote, but out the window, there's like a, is that a school across the street? Like it's a middle I can, school. Yeah. So I can see there's all this other stuff going on, but, um, what, uh, you know, what, what drove you to want to do the kind of cabin fever type of thing? I mean, um, I- part of it is a little bit of a play on the notion of the off season or about being, um, being in a place or, or being the kind of person whose existence is not paid attention to. Um, and so a crucial aspect of the exhibition is not that I'm just here doing this, but, um, toying with, um, the tools that are available, available to us now in the 21st century. So, the exhibition is actually probably seen by more people via the web camera and social media. Um, so as I mentioned, the, the exhibition started when the web camera was turned on. And so I'm really, there's an immense amount of artifice happening here, mm-hmm. which is not just the character myself and the clones that I coexist with, but also the way in which there's some sort of stagecraft happening. And, um, the, the remoteness is part of the not only the, my experience of, of living and working here through this outfit and this mask that I wear on my face, but also the, the way in which people can experience the show itself via this kind of tiny window on their computer with this four-minute delay, and, um, but also the, the ways in which we nowadays do 
project ourselves out into this kind of ether sphere mm-hmm. where, um, you know, I guess, you know, social media is like this idea about sharing with everyone, but it also has the, the unintended consequence of creating introversion within people where, sure, yeah. where these, um, projected experiences substitute for real experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that a lot about, um, you know, do I, do I have friends? You know, not in like a... You have likes, but well, not friends. Well, no, really, though. Like, kind of thinking about, um, you know, when was the last time that either I or somebody else, you know, contacted uh, one another to to actually hang out and do something in the real world? Because I feel like I'm like, oh, I see these people all the time. Um, but I don't. And then I realize that these people who are actually, I count as very good friends, I maybe see once every six weeks because we happen to be going to the same event or something like that. Um but yeah, the other thing is the, I wanted to ask you about the webcam and this, this framing device, because I've been, you know, kind of following it from afar before I got here today. And I'd constructed this entirely different, you know, environment outside of the gallery, just based on the angle. Cause I hadn't mm-hmm. been to Halsey McKay before. And <clears throat> the framing is, uh, you know, pretty clever. It's got this kind of, it's a webcam. So it almost has that sort of fisheye appearance of, you know, the space that's, that seems so isolated because we have no idea what's behind it. And then as we were walking over here and we walk up and it's like a, you know, it's on, I don't know if this is the main street, but it, it's like the, it's like the number two main street. Yeah. It seems like we're in a pretty, uh, pretty populated area of, of, of this place. And I'm wondering about the performance for the camera. Cause you mentioned the, you know, Chaplin being in this, in this cabin with these prospectors and things like that. And, and I'm reminded of all of this, cinematic treatment of the way that people are trapped or lost and wondering if uh you know nothing can really ever translate that feeling of isolation to begin with and you know you said yourself there are a lot of uh, elements of artifice are kind of playing with that anyway so what is the what's the relationship been like with the webcam and how's that how's that changing the way that you're acting in here versus when you first started um another good question um (laughs) i it's funny because the uh, the original impulse behind the webcam was to kind of like prove that yeah. I, that I was doing this, which mm-hmm. is sort of like um a basic um basic requirement of like eurocentric survivalist impulses, yeah, which is like you know guy of a particular degree of like play and privilege goes out to accomplish this task and then like comes back and writes a book about it later or you know, monumentalizes this journey or, or, or conquers something, um, which, um, you know, may or may not be, you know, there might even be indigenous people there who like their daily, their daily experience is conquering this place. So, but the thing that I didn't anticipate was that people would actually watch it. Yeah. Like a lot. Well, every time that I've logged in, there's been, I mean, it doesn't say cause it's YouTube, but it's like, you know, like there's a dozen people watching this right now. And like, no offense, David, but I was like, who the fuck is watching this with me? <laughs> like, I really, you know what I mean? It's that kind of thing where I think you put something out there and it's like, well, I'm, I'm holding myself accountable. But at the same time, it's like, who's really going to tune in, you know? And then every time that I've gone on, there are other people watching and I'm just like, who are these people? And what are they like? And I, I, and what I realized, are they, what are they getting out of this? What are they getting? <laughs> what are they getting out of the transaction? Also, like, what are you, um, what are you getting out of it besides like uh, proof of concept? which is kind of what you just sort of alluded to. Like, no, I have to, you know, there's this tradition of you document it. It's the archive. It says, yes, I was here at this time, you know, sort of like territorial pissing or something. But yeah, what is it? 
I don't know, like, how's the psychology working? Isn't it fucking weird to be on the camera all the time? Uh, yeah, it, and it really, it kind of, like, ups the, um, it, it ups the commitment and, and my own kind of, like, invisible contract that I have with the people that I've asked to care about the show. Yeah. And um, a lot of, you know, I have to go back once a week the reality of the situation is like, I have to go make money in New York city in order to even do this at all. And so the, the thing that I wasn't anticipating was feeling bad about leaving, you know, like where I was sort of like letting my audience down. Yeah. And, um, the other thing was just kind of being surprised. Like I, one thing is that like, I kind of joke in my head that I'm putting the reality back in reality TV even though this is, you know, I'm not, I'm wearing an outfit of myself. That's not really myself. And everything we're doing here is highly artificial, but what I'm doing is like generally so boring. It's just these, like, (laughs) it's a metaphor of life's machinations. Mm -hmm. Like you work and you make, and then you eat and then you sleep and then you get up and you do it all over again. And the way that reality TV, which maybe started with this concept was that people wanted to watch people, in this intimate way where like an intimate experience with something and you know it's become this thing that's sort of just a, a highly structured form of entertainment at this point um so i think that to some degree the it, it taps into and maybe an absence in entertainment that's just kind of boring yeah you know like just uh like it's oftentimes i go to the movies now and if a movie most movies feel like a trailer for a movie that is like going to be made because there's so many jump cuts and they go so fast and they take so many liberties with plot connections or devices. So to spend some long period of time having space and, um, kind of like being able to like contemplate as you watch something, I think maybe that's like in play a little bit here. Yeah. Um, and I want to, so two things that I'm wondering about, and this is kind of related to, And I'm not putting it on you that you are comparing the people who live in East Hampton. You're you're conflating them with indigenous populations where explorers have gone. That, that's not what I mean to do at all. And I and I don't think anybody listening would think that. But um, maybe this is like this will be the the second of two questions. But can you talk about the the aspect of the concept of off season and the fact that you know really there's a pop there's a whole population that lives here and i know that you've i've read a couple things where you talked about that before that that's you know part of the kind of the wink and the nod of of the piece is that it's not off season this is the place that people live and the idea of thinking that it's like uh abandoned during this time of year or some crazy place to go simply because the wealthy people aren't here summering um i know that you've thought a lot about that so that's kind of like the follow-up but i guess the first one is you mentioned that you've been going back to the city um to teach i think is that right yeah i teach at nyu yeah. once a week and so going back to do that you were also um erica don lyle wrote a piece in art form about this and i know in some other places you've been super transparent about that you are going to go back mm-hmm. um so again the the artifice or whatever the mythology that you could have built up with this live stream or something you're also being very plain as day about the fact that like, no, I have to go back and work. And I'm, and I'm wondering how, uh, because so much of this work, the tools, everything else seems to point towards labor, why it's important for you as an artist to kind of lay bare, like you said, the way that it's constructed, like that you have to go back. Cause you could just as easily like gloss over that, you know, and just be like, what would it just be like, no, that day I had to, what, like, 
I was sleeping. Would, would anybody? Yeah. Or would, <laughs> but who would? You know what I mean? Like, would you even get? Would anybody ever even bring that up? You know? But you're being forthcoming about it. And and so, what's that about? What do you want to communicate to people that are, you know, looking at the piece, understanding that you can't uh, even enjoy like a residency for ten weeks because you have to go work. Yeah. Um, this is the big question I think that you're asking right now. And, um, I'm going to try to tackle it cause it's almost like a three part question, but, um, I guess the, the first part about laying it bare or sorry, the third part, the most recent part that you asked me. So part of this too is a little bit of, about transparency, you know, and the part that is like a, a residency or like a live residency or an artist studio is that you're seeing the messy parts of an artist making things. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that maybe stems from, to some degree, what I was feeling like was all of the wasted labor that goes into in advance of an exhibition and all of the unseen properties of that. And one of my favorite parts about this show is that so often when an artist, you know, they, you work and you work and you work for months and months and months and then you put up your show and then it just rots yeah. for 30 days and you hope and pray that something happens and that you somehow make back all the money that you spent on it and that somebody wants to write about it or fucking cares about it at all. And, you know, just in the in the slightest modicum of acknowledgement. Or that you, anybody even sees it besides the two hours when everybody's getting drunk at it. Yeah, or, you know, just <laughs> it's like I saw your show on Instagram. So <laughs> a lot of this was about, like, the embrace of that, but also about kind of... Um, it's way more economical for me to do this. Like I'm making the show and the show is alive and, and happening like all the time. And then when I'm done, I like pack up and I leave. And like, there's to me, there's no wasted energy at all in this scenario. Um, but I guess that goes back to the, the, what you're saying about the, when we were talking about the indigenous population and all that stuff. Um, and, I guess I had some suspicion that calling the show off season would resonate with people out here. Um, what I didn't anticipate was how much. Yeah. And um, there are a lot of um, class issues that go on in, the, in this place. I can imagine. I mean, taking the train out here, it's like it's, you know, I, I haven't been out here. Tony asked me earlier, if I, have I been out here before? I've been to a watermill before, but the thing that I remember describing to somebody after I took the Long Island Railroad out this way one time was that, um, or the first time rather, was that as you look out the window, it, it's it's like by people's backyards, you can tell the class sort of disparity that's going on. Like you go all of a sudden, you're just like, whoa, what the fuck? Everybody has a... A Richard Sarah in their yard. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> or you go by and there's this like, wow, these backyards are kind of like... Um, these backyards look like they haven't been mowed or this or that or something like that. Then you go by some other ones and you're like, oh, well, maybe this is like burgeoning middle class. They have above ground pools. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, these people have in-ground pools and like everything is landscaped. And then all of a sudden it just switches that like on a dime. But yeah. Yeah. Have you, there was something that I read, somebody wrote, uh, I'm not gonna remember the name of the publication. I'm sorry, but it was a local publication. It was about this show and Mm -hmm. and it brought up the idea that you called it off season um, and it wasn't like disparaging, but it seemed to kind of, you, you actually had some quotes in it where you were very transparent about like knowing that that name was, you know, going to be for somebody who lived here kind of like a, what the fuck? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of a trigger in a weird way because like, as you said, there is no off season for 
people who are always off season or always on, you know, like, I guess it depends on how you look at it. And, um, this also stems from my experience of coming out here. The, the weird thing is, is that I have probably been to the Hamptons more than I have been home to visit my parents. Doing like art handling? Yeah. Or, yeah. So um, okay. the other thing that I do other than teaching to make ends meet is that I install art in directly for very wealthy people mm-hmm. in their homes in New York City and also out here and, you know, can be elsewhere as well. Um, but um, oftentimes coming out here... Um, I realized that my experience is a direct inversion of the sort of like in quotes notion of the Hamptons as, as a playground because I come out to work Yeah, and you know, there's been people who visited the show who, you know, will talk to me about the traffic and the trade traffic and the trade route. And they're kind of like being a little disparaging about the number of, um, cargo vans and, and, and trucks and gardening trucks and glass trucks and construction trucks they create this massive traffic jam out here that kind of impedes upon the absolute enjoyment of, um, and seamless enjoyment of this place. And, um, often I am part of this expedition that comes out here. Yeah. And what, I mean, essentially what it entails is I either bring artworks in a cargo van or we just bring a toolkit and we meet some sort of, art transport company and we go into these houses in advance of Memorial day and we hang a bunch of art, either whether it's from their house in New York and they're just transplanting it for the summer or some with some of them were actually shutting down the house after they've left in the fall, like around October and which can include putting um, light protective um, slips over the pictures and you're essentially like opening up and closing down a house. Wow. Um, that's so fucking, <laughs> so we, I mean, my only like reference for that is that when I was growing up, my, my dad and my mom built like a, built like a cabin that we had that was like 20 miles outside of town. And my dad used to have to go and like, um, you know, turn the hot water on like once a week when, when we couldn't go out there in the winter. And when I say like, we didn't have like a beach house, I just mean it was like a, a thing that they built that we would go to sometimes in the summer, but he'd have to turn on so that the pipes wouldn't burst. But that's like my only reference for like having I mean, yeah, God. And that relates to what you were saying here too. And I'm not trying to derail what you're saying, but, um, that this is the sort of dead zone of the gallery and all these houses and things like that. And then you just think about how much space is unoccupied. And, and that relates to this idea of how much, how much labor goes unkind of documented or unused that goes into an art show. And so it seems very apropos that this is the site where you inject that, especially that you've, I mean, you're not, I guess you're a tourist in one sense, but you've also come out here and done all of the like sort of unsexy part of what makes the, the Hamptons, the Hamptons. <laughs> yeah. And, and that is the other thing is like, I don't, I don't really leave, you know, I like when I'm here, I work, um, essentially nonstop, you know, I might, I leave for 30 minutes here and there to get a coffee and a sandwich or some groceries that, yeah. you know, I'll even cook in here and stuff. But I consider this like my job and, again with the inversion like i'm i'm a i'm a new york city person who's coming out here to work and um so i I am having the the opposite experience to some degree however the flip side of all this which i have to acknowledge too though is that like 
I am also coming from a position of privilege, just like the rich people. Like I am coming out here to do this thing. That's all about me and my ego with my name on it. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the entire storied history of the Hamptons and the arts is, you know, aside for the, probably the earliest days with Jackson Pollock and, and de Kooning and people coming out here is that this is a place that has an outsized amount of artistic activity because there is a wealthy community yeah. that supports the arts. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, like a lot of the people that are walking down the street here, you know, a few of them are pretty surprised, but this isn't like Iowa. Like people aren't like, what the hell is sure, that? Yeah, yeah. People are of like, course. Oh, that's an art installation. In fact, so many people like are just like, Oh, there's another show, you know, this town with at least like seven, eight, nine, ten galleries some of them contemporary art, some of them modern art. Um, every year there's, you know, there's a performance festival, which we talk about. There's, there's a lot of things going on here, which is the other thing. It's just that right now is the, the time of year where nobody is really putting all their effort into it. Yeah. Wow. Um, I wanted to chat a bit about the, the clones or the second skins or however you want to, uh, describe them specifically. And my first encounter with them was, you mentioned it earlier, but, uh, you had a solo show at Derek Eller gallery this summer in the Lower East side and you hinted at this, but you didn't describe it in full. And I had written about that show, but I missed the opening. And could you talk through what you said earlier about people showed up and you installed the show during the opening? Like what, what, what happened and um also what are the what are the clones made out of like what i mean i i'm looking at <laughs> several of them right now and i can kind of, i mean i can kind of guess but it's they're un they're unsettling <laughs> i don't know we're in a room with like how many is it four five of you I don't uh, know. you're yeah, one of them including me there's five there's five, there's five including yeah, you yeah, or yeah. Like the Beatles before we got famous the Beatles before we got famous and these were <laughs> okay just so the Rolling Stones. yeah maybe walk me through what did uh so people show up at what like six what, what's going on in the gallery at Derek Eller this summer um yeah so the the show starts at six and I'm not there and people keep showing up and I'm not there and I'm not there and I'm not there um, a few people, which includes, uh, Derek and his staff and my wife were informed in, uh, in advance. Also, I had, I had done something in Estonia, the, um, some months before, very similar to this. So I think there was probably an expectation on the part of people who follow my work or my friends that I might do something. Um, and, uh, so slight backtrack here when you walk into the gallery what you see is an art show with kind of sculptural reliefs reliefs on the wall and a wall that i had constructed that was at a kind of a 45 degree angle within the back of the gallery that kind of subdivided the gallery right and it was a little um, bit it was like a couple few feet thick or something like that yeah I right? think it was like 18 20 inches thick yeah, or something okay. like that it was, it was a self-support like self-standing yeah. wall it was a slight, slightly strange it wasn't just like a yeah, it was kind of monolithic, but a little bit wider than it was yeah. tall. And um, a chode. It was a chode, if you will. <laughs> I don't think I've said that on the podcast before. I'm sorry, yeah, but. well, at least you know the correct <laughs> definition of chode. Thank you. Yes, I think it's regional. Yeah. I think well, it might be regional. Some people they think call it's it something the, else. The, yeah, they think mm. the taint is the... 
Yeah, but that's very confusing. It's not true. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, though, so people walk in, you've got this sort of monolith. <laughs> so this uh, this thing, it's almost like the this the I would if you looked at it in aerial view, it would be like a, a fraction symbol. Yeah. And um, flanking that and squared up with it were two empty vitrines. And sort of like the coffins that we have up here. Yeah. The, these in the installation, these are actually the same vitrines that are in this piece. Um, that's in this room with us right now. Those, um, were completely empty. They're plexiglass and plywood containers and they had a single hammer hanging inside of them. Um, a wooden hammer that a good friend of mine, Graham Anderson yeah, uh, you made said, for it's me. It's like a gift for you, right? Yeah. He, yeah. he makes me these hammers, um, which he thinks will help me with my work. But is um, he cool with you? Are they art pieces or functional pieces? They're both. I mean, okay. they've become this. He's thing. okay with you bashing the shit out of stuff with him, though. Yeah, I think it makes him laugh. Probably. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> I mean, he's <laughs> he's probably one of the the best friends that a person could ever have, um, in a really touching way. And he, you know, when someone gives you a gift, that's like it. It's like a you know, I don't know. It's just a thing that when as soon as he gave me the first one of these things. I thought like I need to pay homage to this. Like yeah. I need to, I need to make this gesture like infamous. You know what I mean? Like just be like, this must be the world must know about Graham's hammer. Yeah. So, um, and a lot of the pieces are called Graham's hammer that employ this thing. Anyway, that aside, we're losing the thread, but, um, so, um, about seven o'clock, my opening was pretty full. I'm hiding in a crate in the storage of the back of Derek Eller. There are some friends who are showing up who are really mad at me, who are texting me, like, where are you? I, like, my, my daughter has to go home, or my parents are coming on a flight at JFK. Like, it's good for having a child. Thinking that you're some sort of, like, you know, sort of arrogant rock star artist who won't even <laughs> show up to their own opening. <laughs> and at, at 7 p.m., you know, my wife and I are texting, and, you know, so-and-so is here and so-and-so is here and Graham is here and you know, like all of the, all of the people that need to be there. And then it's like go time. And so I think it was something like seven Oh seven or something. I was like, I waited an extra minute for like a good number. I came out of the storage in this outfit, my second skin, which is, a, uh, again, like, a, and it's the image of myself that I'm wearing. And, um, I came out and the whole audience goes quiet and I kind of start stalking around this wall and I discover those two hammers and then I um, proceed to start hammering through the wall. And the, the hole that I create through the wall like essentially creates like a conduit between those two vitrines. Yeah. Um, and it's the exact same shape and size of that. So it's like a doorway. One, and, you know, it takes me a lot of time. I run back and forth to both sides of it, kind of like a really rhythmic kind of hammering. And then I'm like exhausted and out of breath because I can barely breathe in this mask. And um, I go inside the wall and then I come out through the aperture of that hole with two of these dummies or clones. And um, it's kind of like the big reveal, like where people are like, why is he even doing this? You know? Um, And then um, I proceed to do this thing, which I've been doing with them is trying to turn them into autonomous sculptures um, the only duty of a sculptor really is to get something to stand up in this world and defy gravity. And so the, the dummies like perpetually fail and they, they fall and they fall and they keep falling. 
So um, at some point I pick up those hammers again and using those, um, I'm able to hoist the dummies up by their collars into those vitrines and um, get them to stand up as proper sculptures. And then once my task is completed, I undress out of my skin suit. I'm wearing the same clothes that the, that the sculpture is based off of. And then I leave my opening never to return. And that literally involves walking out onto the street in my socks. <laughs> <laughs> and did you, in the, in the skin that you were wearing, was that the one that was dropped sort of in the hole that you'd knocked out of the walls? And it's kind of laying there almost like a, reminded me of like Roger Rabbit or something. Like when they, when the tunes deflate. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of like a deflated sack of a, of a person yeah. as if the, all your interior just kind of evaporated. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I left that in that sort of, um, transient space in between and it, you know, kind of the feet pointed at one and the head pointed at the other. And, um, when people ask like, Oh, is that a performance? I would be like, no, I was finishing the installation of the show. (laughs) And so again, going back to what you were saying about performance, like it really, I don't know if it's just me, but I, I really need that rationale to justify what I'm doing which is that like, I'm just doing what I would normally do, but as a character and for the audience's benefit, sort of like revealing the process. Yeah. Yeah. And what about the, so the, the clones themselves, as well as the, the one that you actually wear, they're somewhere in between, um, you know, kind of like this photorealistic facsimile and a cartoon. And I, I know that in animation, there's this thing where, um, you can get too real. I can't remember what I was listening to recently, but somebody who was an animator was talking about how, you know, why uh, everybody flipped out about the polar express was because the eyes were too real. Mm-hmm. Like, and that was, it fucked with people. People don't like that. They don't want it to be that far or something like that. It's the um, uncanny Valley. Yeah. Yeah. Thought, right? Yeah. 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 I think it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that there's these, uh, these clones sort of exist in there where it gives, uh, it gives us a certain safety to know that they're fake, but at the same time, the one that you've concocted to wear for yourself is there in a doubled back kind of facsimile. I don't know. Do you know what I'm trying to allude to here? Like the, the, the second skin that you wear is based on these caricatures that you've created. So it, it, it becomes weirder simply by that. Like they're, I, I would never mistake one of those for you, except for the fact that what you wear is them. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Uh, like that's yeah. I don't, I don't know. It's some sort of extra uncanny valley. I don't really know what what's going on there. Yeah, there's a there's kind of an extreme perversion of the of the appearance of the thing. And, yeah, and part of it is, um, with scanning, which is how it's achieved. The like the one to one scale is I'm essentially scanning um, the objects that go into the photographic documentation and scanning has a way of making, um, images appear like very hyper real and like above real somehow. And it enhances the color saturations and doesn't give you a lot of like depth or field or nuance, but essentially like creates a hyperbole of a thing. And, um, the other thing is I've, I've uh, collaged, uh, not collaged, but the original scan, I put kale and bread all over the clothes and the mask is thermoformed um, over like a light, like a plaster life mask with mm-hmm. a heat gun, and so you essentially you get all these errors in production that, and you end up with this kind of like 
also the expression on the mask is completely blank and yeah. kind of like weirdly in this like bemused half smile or like something. And, um, the, the, um, the thing is like, have you ever, like the thing with an avatar, right. Or like digital animation is that like when you're modeling, um, like a 3d animated character, you essentially create, do you know what a texture map is? Uh, maybe I could guess, but why don't you tell me? Um, I feel like it's like a, I think it looks like a matrix that lays over something that's 3d. Yeah. It's like, um, I mean, and this is something to do, to do with process to some degree, but the way in which people, um, who are digital animators or modelers, they, you create form first, like a sculpture. Mm-hmm. Um, the artist, Michael Delusha, was actually the guy who hipped me to this whole idea, which is that he was like, what you're making is essentially like a texture map, but you're doing like a really analog version of it. But, um, what you do is you create like a flat skin, almost like a, you know, like, like a hunter or a serial killer would like take the, the skin of something and like stretch it out. Yeah. Um, or like a, like a, like a bear rug or something like that. Imagine that. And what you're doing is you're cutting away all the skin and like creating this flat thing. So then you can go and like suck it to this three dimensional. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I first made this thing, um, Michael Delusha was like, uh, you're totally making a texture map, even though you don't even know you're doing it. And I think that lends itself to something about like the way that my process works out, which is that I'm, um, I'm kind of like using all these digital tools, but like only to like re-import them back to the analog world. Yeah. And within that process, there's just like a ton of like glitching, I guess, or, or like, it just, it looks like kind of crap, you know, <laughs> when it comes out, but in, but in a, but in kind of like a, in a horrifying way though, I mean, what would be the, what would be the, the end result to, to the scanning method that you're using if you didn't bring it back into the, into the analog world? Like what, what's the purpose of, um, scanning at the resolution that you're doing it, um, a, a flannel shirt with kale and bread on it? Like what would, what would a commercial use of that where would that image go? What would it be for? <laughs> I mean, you um, just totally using it in a I'll dumb t- way I'll, or is I'll there an actual you. reason? A gallery <laughs> in East Hampton in January. <laughs> that that's is a- exactly why the technology was invented. No, <laughs> yes. but no, but I think, I mean, that's what's, well, that's what's so fucking weird is like, it's hard to make, um, it's really hard to make something that is, uh, freaky now, you know? And, and it's hard to make something that's also funny, but it's not haha funny. And I, and I think that, you know, clearly horror and comedy have these very intrinsic relationships with one another, but yeah, the stuff in here is, um, that the clones, when we first walked in or the avatars or, or however you want to describe them, you know, I sort of giggled. Oh, isn't that funny? It's like, mm. he's weird. There's David's all over the place. <laughs> but then literally I came back from the bathroom and I was ran into one of them and scared the shit out of me. Like, it's not cool. You know, like there's something, there's some weird push and pull that goes with that. Like the one that, you know, people can't see this right now because I'm talking to you, but there's one laying on the floor behind you and it's wearing a pair of what I assume are vans that the, the soul is very worn out on. And so when I came around the corner, I thought you'd lie down to like try to scare the shit out of me or something like that. And then I mm-hmm. looked up and no, you're across the room doing something else. And that's a... That's really weird. I don't know. Yeah, I think that um, it, it. I think it's it's all pretty weird. I mean, the the place how I got here, I can't even really explain anymore. But to some degree, it's like a 
a series of like upping challenges for myself and kind of going down through this, this rabbit hole of like, Oh, what would this be like? And what would this be like? And, um, but it also, it's like opened up a whole way of, of being for me where I can like essentially like via this character, I can, I can take anything that I've ever been interested in and like funnel it through what I'm doing. And, and it's really been an an incredible aid, but it, it also goes back to when I was talking about sculpture and my, my like theory of sculpture, I guess. And I'm constantly, I like that, that you said to make something stand up or defy gravity, right? Yeah. I mean, I've been talking to my students about this quite a bit. Um, at NYU, um, they're seniors, they're generally like pretty mature. And, um, most of the sculptors I I'm trying to talk to them about sculpture and, you know, after the ready-made, um, that Duchamp invented and the, I've heard of it. Yeah, well, um, I think to some degree, like people, uh, they don't, I guess there's not really like a necessarily there's a lot that can be taken for granted based uh, based on the hybrid the hybrid fluid quality of art making where you, you know no boundaries but um having having always made sculptures i guess that are sort of evidence of their own making to some degree um and one show that i made in particular of these totally transparent sculptures oh yeah that um, was like 10 years ago right 2009 it's, it's getting close yeah um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. I remember seeing photos of it. Yeah, so I made a show of invisible sculptures. There were was that a Derek Eller too? It was my it yeah was my first solo show in New York City. I remember. I didn't even live here. I saw photos of it online. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Fuck. Full that was circle. A, that man. was a minute ago. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean not that long. That's not that long ago. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. We've been busy as society since well, then. Yeah. Well, it's a weird fucking change. <laughs> <laughs> Literally sitting in one of your weird blankets right now. This is very different than an invisible sculpture, but. Well, you are a sculpture now. I know. So mm. I was getting there. I know yeah. what you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, my basic, I mean, I just think about that a lot is that like that sculpture has a thing, you know, with a capital S is that it's meant to engage directly with you and your perception of it. And when I talk to students about it, I say like, imagine like sometimes they'll just like throw a bunch of trash on the ground and I'll be like, why are you always asking me to look at your sculpture like this? Cause I'm up here and and it's down there. I'm like, do you hate this stuff? Cause you're debasing that stuff because you're essentially saying like, I already know it's stuff. And you're like, it's stuff with a capital S, you know? And so I'm like, and like what you're talking about, about coming out of the bathroom and seeing this figure is that like, that is the quality of this form, which is that like, imagine you're a caveman on some open tundra somewhere and you see this like little totem, you know, Mm -hmm. on the horizon and like your hackles go up and you like, all you can do is both empathize and fear that thing. Yeah. And, and there's something I think like really primal within us where we are, trying to like perpetually engage with things that remind us of ourselves and it's really self-absorbed and narcissistic and well no it's but that's you see a face in abstract art you see it you know every time that somebody takes psychedelics they look at the trees and what do they see they see faces yeah like no yeah that's a in the same thing with encountering sculpture it's like the it's just a given that people use the body their own body as the as the thing to measure it against like that's what scale is. Yeah. You know, it's the me versus this kind of thing. 
Um, absolutely. And I think that the, probably the, I think a lot of things have become either outsized or, or theoretical in our, our time in the 21st century. So I do think that oftentimes things that have the most power in the, in the most basic way that create that conduit between you and it, sort of like this invisible tether are like, it's often like you speaking of horror, like you see a horror movie and most of the monsters aren't scary anymore. They're like these big, like digitally rendered create, you know, like there's, there's ways in which we've gone like so far away of our own palpable experience of the world that we're losing like connection to it. And I think that what you're talking about, like walking out and seeing, it's not like I'm setting out to make something like really horrific. No, no. I just, I just made a thing. And then mostly because like, I didn't really know how to sew and I was trying to like make a prop for a video. That's how this originated. And it was all about making like an approximation for a thing in quotes. And then it ended up being this thing that like people were just like, it really unsettled people, yeah. you know? And like, that's as like best you can hope for as a, someone who makes a sculpture is that people look twice. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And that's, yeah, it's kind of funny to think about the, the idea. I mean, I, I like to make fun of sculpture a lot and only because I think sculpture is like the easiest thing to make fun of, but (laughs) (laughs) Michelangelo, (laughs) no, but, but I think you're right. The, um, yeah, there's something powerful in being able to make something that references stuff that we're familiar with that still kind of fucks you up because that's the tough thing with sculpture right now. I feel like is that there's, you know, you mentioned the ready-made earlier. It's how do you choose between what objects you pick to juxtapose? You know, that's the joke that I'm always making about sculptures. Every sculptor gets really mad when some other sculptor finds the same two objects that they can buy at Home Depot and glues them together. And they're like, God, they ripped me off. But, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but that's not, that doesn't present anything that's uncanny that like breaks the use purposes of two things but to think of something that you can kind of like elevate and make weird and do these other things like this thing where it does become uncanny and i don't i don't look at it and go oh the joke is you smush these two things together it changed the context the joke becomes that like the context that i'm experiencing this in can change based on my vantage point in the round Mm -hmm. like that's that's why sculpture is interesting yeah is because the way you approach it physically quite literally can completely change or the, the circumstances under which you see it can totally change your read. And that's, that's like kind of exciting. Yeah. And like back to boys again, like it's social sculpture. Yeah. Yeah. Because. Well, sculpture is social and I'm not yeah. trying to be a dick. That's not like, Oh, look what it, I just mean like, really it is. It, it mm-hmm. requires a, it requires an audience experiencing it in a way that, um, I guess, <clears throat> this live stream or documentation or something isn't quite going to capture. It'll allude to it, but yeah, to like see the thing requires a a socialization with it. And, and that can be played with, I think nicely. Yeah. But I mean, the other thing with the, with the live feed and the fact that there's five of us is that it's us. (laughs) And then women, we are, you've been out here. for No, I understand. You've been out here for a little bit. I'm okay, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay. I'm okay. I promise. I swear. Um, the the cam the sort of ca- the camouflage thing it still works a little bit through the or the confusion or the perceptions like still works through the camera where yeah. oftentimes too when I'm art making is like pretty boring because you're often doing like a repetitive task over and over again or like a very tiny 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 gesture so oftentimes when I'm making stuff in front of that camera like 
I'm on a moving blanket here and I'm like doing something which given the distance of the camera and the pixelization, like you don't see, see me like stirring plaster with a glove. Like it, you just think like, Oh, there's five things. And then all of a sudden, whoop, like after five minutes, one of them gets up and pours plaster out of a bucket. Yeah, yeah. And, um, like I, I actually think that to some degree, um, because of the, the qualities of that remove or that distance kind of enhance what I'm doing here a little bit, because if you were in the room with me here, you, there was, you would always given like your own intelligence as a human being, you would be like, Oh, well that, he's there yeah. and they're there. But the way in which people's attention works like via tuning in is you're like, you know, some people are like, they've got the laptop on top of their refrigerator while they're cooking with their partner and they're, you know, like smoking weed or like drinking wine or whatever. And they're just like looking up occasionally. And it's kind of like within that attention span via the webcam where it like really works. I think like what I'm doing here. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, maybe to kind of round this out that when you described earlier that you wanted to sort of lay bare all of these processes or what you did at Derek Eller, when you want to kind of create the performance in the round, there's something about this that, um, I'm still kind of wrestling with about that live stream and the action happening then and somebody not getting to see it. And then also people not necessarily physically getting to come to this thing that I think kind of just presents a really fun crisis with artistic labor and, and the physical object is a thing anyways, because yeah, you're right. If, if I weren't watching on the webcam, very little of what you would do would surprise me or seem strange. Um, it requires that kind of distance or that, that, that kind of filter between the view or something like that. Um, but then again, these things are weird and aesthetically strange through the webcam, but they're nowhere near as fucking weird as when you're in the room with them. So I don't know. Like it's, a, it's an exciting kind of a complication that you set up that, you know, I don't know if it's going to get rectified in the next few weeks, but Jesus, some some very weird shit going on and you know i'm having a closing and i I hope that people will make the trip to see what i did but um this whole thing has been like an evolving process where i don't know where we're going and i mean some degree is that of this project has been that like my community so to speak like is just far away and the and the remoteness is what i'm interested through all of the iterations of this project like i'm remote in the outfit I am remote as an image, like I am remote as a metaphor. People are remote from me. Like, you know, there's a sort of divorce of real experience happening here or kind of surrogate type experience that's happening. But um, the nice thing about this show is that I've gotten to do like every idea in one show. And the next iteration, you know, like if it's, let's say it's in New York City, like people can maybe watch me do what I'm doing in reality. Yeah. Um, uh, it's weird to be, you know, Sarah Greenberger who's a very close friend of mine kind of derides me periodically for not, cause I, I, I don't read Sarah derides you for yeah, something. She does, which is no. that I, I don't read fiction. I haven't read fiction in like years and years and years. Really? And, um, I think she's kind of getting a little bit of a laugh out of the show because I'm cr- constructing this like pretty elaborate fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Here. Well, now I feel very happy that I didn't <laughs> ask you about science fiction or some, something like that. I would have been terribly embarrassed when you told me that you didn't read it. You're like, this is actually a biography in the past tense. <laughs> <laughs> aren't all, aren't all biographies in the past tense, David, though, if you, you know, 
Well, what if definition? this is a biography in the present tense? <laughs> a live stream. It's not even a live stream. There's a four minute gap. There's no <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> um, no, but, but only you know because you made the journey. You're like yeah, yeah. you're actually now. Well, because I walked in front of the camera and I was like, why am I not on the screen? <laughs> but you're in, a, you're in East Hampton now, so you've officially become privileged. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I was before I got here. Everyone who comes here, everyone who comes to this town, it gets a free cape. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. I can't wait to get back on the Long Island Railroad and head home and see what the fuck happens to me when I get on the uh, you know. Get a little bit closer to the city <laughs> with, <laughs> the your actual, de- with your actual with your The escape. actual Hamptons when someone gets on from Babylon and sees me wearing this, I'm like, "Hello, I'm coming from the <laughs> Um Well, uh, they'll open up the private car for you. Yeah, that would be nice. Mm-hmm. I'll just sit in the uh, restaurant. It's like a Russian nightclub yeah. <laughs> with an ice <laughs> room. Or whatever. Um, well, David, uh, thank you so much for inviting me out here. Thanks for. Uh, you know, spending this time with human, the abject to everybody who's listening. Thank you for tuning in. And, um, as we're exiting here, maybe you could, uh, walk me through the show real quick. Sure. No problem. Don't mind if I put my mask down. No, that sounds great. Uh, thanks everybody. We will see you next week. Uh, yeah, there's different areas of of the show, I guess. Um, the central thing is the, is the shelter here. Um, so when I, when I first arrived, this is the first thing that I did was I built this structure, this cube-like structure in the middle. Um, and I sealed everything that I brought with me, except for myself and the outfit that I'm wearing inside of that. And then I drywalled it and mudded it and painted it and sealed it up completely hermetically. And then from that moment on, the plot of the show, show kind of started evolving. Um, so within that was the Epson 9800 uh, printer on the inside here. Um, that uh, came inside of the crate, which I call the sleeping crate. Uh, when I was taking the measurements to build the crate for it, I realized that the printer is only one inch shorter than I am. Mm. So I thought, oh, this will be the place that I sleep. Printer and, and the, the printer will be my bunk name. Um, and then once it got up there, I kind of started to think about it as the central element of the whole show. It's like a deity or a hearth or some sort of place that is communed with frequently. Um, and you can see the moving blankets uh, inside there, which is my bedding. And um, busting out of the walls are two vitrines, which are which now function as sleeping pads for my clones. Mm-hmm. Um, so every night when we go to bed, uh, I put two clones to sleep in their sleeping pods. You pull them down physically and put them inside. Yeah, they go, they go inside, which we can, we can see later when we sleep. Okay. Um, and... They'll be sort of hovering above. Yeah, it, 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 it's a little disorienting to say the least. Um, and then one, uh, one clone always stands guard, uh, to watch out for... The night watch. The night watch, yeah. yeah. And then one sometimes sleeps with me, sometimes hangs out with the one keeping guard, and or sometimes just hangs out elsewhere. So we're kind of like on a rotating crew here. Wonderful. Cool. And the works that are on the walls are made here in situ, or are these works that you brought in? Uh, no, they're all made in situ. Every, Almost every single thing except for the clones and the ready-mades, i.e. the printer, were made on site. You know, my tools, obviously, I bought them in advance, but um, we came out here and um, the, sh- the show has a 10-point a list 
which is not necessarily meant to be in an exact sequence, mm -hmm. but um, sort of like a punch list of things that are required to survive. So while we're out here, and the, the list is basically uh, food, clothing, tools, warmth, companionship, 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 companionship. I feel like I'm forgetting one, but... Um, so shelter? The, shelter, right. Shelter is yeah, the first yeah, one. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> so shelter was the first thing that we achieved, and, um, and then afterwards, clothing was the next thing I worked on, because we needed to stay warm, and um, after that we did some food foraging, and um, we're kind of like mostly in the brown realm of winter food, mm -hmm. so potatoes and bread. Um, and you'll see kind of scattered around, there's bread piles and bread planted into the sides of the shelter. Um, over here, uh, <clears throat> these are um, pieces in honor of what I call the trudge, which is uh, my weekly uh, foraging journeys to acquire new things for us mm -hmm. that we need to survive, such as food or more clothing or the basic economics of what we need to survive. So I often forage while my clones stay here. And then I return hopefully with some sustenance each week for us. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the direction of these, uh, um, the direction of the shoes is kind of like implying the, the trudge across time and space. Um, we have some shirts scattered about um, there's a bread piece here, it's a bread pile here, and uh, at the rear of the shelter we have um, a workstation uh, where I can work on um, the various things that we need inside of the, inside of our uh, microcosm here, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and what are these, uh, oh, these are earbuds on the back here. What's that? These, uh, prints? Uh, yeah, those are, um, those are prints, uh, acetate prints that come out of the Epson 9800. Um, those are, uh, I've been taking a photograph of a uh, headphone tangle, like the state of my mm -hmm. headphones every day, as a sort of a quasi calendar, um, for kind of use as, like, a, a calendar, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, each week we also do a diagnostic with the printer to check our health, which, uh, we can come around and see that. So yeah, uh, each week we kind of check how we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see, this was, this was a pretty bad week, like the, uh, I'm not even sure what happened, but the, the ink quality actually like reversed itself <laughs> for a second. Yeah. Um, cause normally it's supposed to just look like that. So that was a pretty bad week, week three. We're doing so well. Uh, this is the template for remanufacturing body parts. Our hands, actually. Uh, our hands break down a lot as we work. Okay. You can kind of see the yeah, yeah. condition of mm -hmm. these things. You have to keep remaking the, remaking the hand. Yeah, and that's actually, we, we have a mobile surgical station. Oh, yeah? The sewing machine over there. Uh -huh. So we set up and I've had to repair mostly like heads, necks, armpits, groins, um, and, and hands. We just really burn through the hands here. Yeah. 
Um, this is the, um, uh, I guess, sort of like a like a welcome mat slash, um, um, like, uh, you know, something to put your feet on, basically, so we don't trap the snow into the, mm. into the shelter. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of an accumulation of, uh, of snow. So it's kind of been building up as I've been shoveling out the, uh, the black layers around here. And, uh, yeah, this is my uh, mezuzah here, um, which has an added feature of telling us how cold it is. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice room temp. With about, yeah, uh, it's been a little bit warm. Yeah, about 70 in here, maybe 68. Perfect room temp right now. Uh, on the top of the sleeping crate, you can see my headlamp, which I, oh, yeah. uh, once it gets dark, um, I wear the headlamp to navigate the camp around here, and uh, I'm also able to read at night. Oh, yeah. That's good. Very useful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is the, the basic structure of where we live. Cool. Um, just to survive the winter out here. <laughs>